Let's take our Bibles this morning and be finding the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right near the middle of your Bibles. You open it up right to the middle, you'll probably land somewhere around the book of Psalms if you're not sure where it is. Psalms, Proverbs, and then the book of Ecclesiastes. If you need a Bible, it's on page 518 in the Pew Bible that's in the rack in front of you today. And we begin a brand new summertime series out of the book of the Bible that's much discussed, much debated, much talked about. One that some people don't care for at all, and others, like me, uh, that find it incredibly refreshing and bone honest to the core, Uh, and that's the book of Ecclesiastes. In October of 1943, the Nazi concentration camp at Sobibor in Poland, which was the second largest uh, Nazi concentration camp there in Poland, second only to Auschwitz, there was a famous uprising in which about 200 prisoners escaped. One of those prisoners, a man by the name of Thomas Blatt, joined up uh, with two other companions uh, during the escape, and they made their way out through the very dense Polish forest uh, through uh, the twists and the turns and the darkness and the uncertainty. For four straight days, they went without sleep, trying to find their way to the closest village that they could and uh, in the darkness, they would sleep during the day, try to travel at, uh, at night, or in the daytime rather, uh, travel at night and sleep when they could in the daytime, but they were exhausted after three or four days. They kept trying to find signs of life only to be disappointed. And on the fourth day, they began to accelerate their pace when they saw what appeared to be the outline of a tower out on the horizon and uh, some buildings in the background. But before they got to the gate of what they thought was a Polish village, one of them held his arms out and stopped them in their tracks when they realized that what they were seeing was, in fact, the Sobibor concentration camp. For four straight days and all of that exhaustion, they came to the realization that they hadn't done anything but walk in one complete circle. They'd expended all that energy to go absolutely nowhere at all. May I ask you a question this morning? Have you all ever felt like that with your life? You ever feel like you're running on a treadmill or on a stair climbing machine? You know, you're spending tons of energy, but you're not really going anywhere, never really accomplishing anything. The biblical book of Ecclesiastes was written by a man who felt, I think, a lot like that, especially as he neared the end of his life. The author of this book is one of the smartest, wisest, wealthiest men who ever lived. And yet all of that learning, all of those smarts, all of that intellect, all of that money, all of those possessions never bought him apparently a minute's peace. His attitude, I think, is best summed up in this book down in verse 14 of chapter 1 where he confesses this, I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are what? Say it out loud. Meaningless. And then he describes it in a way that's very familiar to the readers of this book. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. 
Today we begin a summertime study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and the theme of our study, as you probably gathered from the bumper that ran just a moment ago, serves as something of a summary for the whole book, and that is the very simple question, what's the point? I offered somebody a cup of decaffeinated coffee the other day, which is all I had, and he looked at me and said, what's the point? And I said, well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm getting ready to preach a sermon series with that very title. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes deals with. What's the point of life? What's the point of working 40, 50, 60 hours a week? What's the point of relationships, especially when they fracture and break? What's the point of money and what's the point of possessions? Really gets to the heart of it. What's the point of the universe? What's the point of it all? Let me say from the outset, being honest myself, that the book of Ecclesiastes is not the easiest book in the Bible to navigate. But at Hillcrest, we don't shy away from hard things, do we? Amen. It's the whole counsel of the Word of God that matters. And this is not a particularly easy book. In his notes on Ecclesiastes, Martin Luther says, this book is one of the more difficult books in all of Scripture, one that no one has completely mastered. So it's not what we call easy reading, though I will say that the more you read it, especially with a good study Bible in hand, um, the more easy it becomes and the easier it is to understand the main points. In fact, I'd encourage you as we go through this series over the next several weeks to take your Bible and read through it a number of times. Read through it thoughtfully, read through it slowly, read through it with questions in your mind. Uh, and that will help as we unpack many of the deep truths of this deep book. I would say secondly that not only is Ecclesiastes not the easiest book in the Bible to read, but frankly, it's not the most encouraging book in the Bible either, at least not in certain places. Somebody once said that the book of Ecclesiastes was the only book of the Bible that was written on a Monday morning. Amen. Um, and here's the thing. You know, I, I, I don't know if I had a new believer that I was discipling that I would begin him or her in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know what I'm saying? I think it's better read by a mature believer who's had some Christian experience with life. Um, but having said that, I do think that it can be a little bit perplexing if you approach it with the wrong set of lenses on. You really have to have the right set of lenses. If you read it from a worldly perspective, a worldly point of view, a fleshly point of view, um, then you'll find it <clears throat> kind of a challenging book. But if you learn, as we often talk about at Hillcrest, to live life with the long view, I mean, if you really realize that you're ultimately not a citizen of the United States or a citizen of this world, but a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And if you truly understand that for the believer, the best is still to come, if you learn to focus on the things of life, not under the sun, as Solomon will say, but learning to live above the sun, which is where believers are supposed to spend most of their time, then this can become a very encouraging book. I have found in my own personal study, particularly in more recent years, to be honest with you, that the book of Ecclesiastes really encourages my soul. It really feeds my soul in many different ways. But if you read it from the wrong perspective, if you don't have the right set of lenses on, you might throw up your hands and get a little bit discouraged along the way. And that's part of the reason why you have a preacher, amen. 
Have a preacher keep you focused on the right things, and that's exactly what we're going to do. But it's kind of evident what I'm talking about in the first three verses of Ecclesiastes, which is our text for today. So let's take a look at it. In fact, let's read it out loud together. It's only three verses long. Words will be on the screen if you need it. Everybody together. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. Y'all see what I'm talking about? Right there from the outset, the very beginning. Most speakers, most people who speak for a living understand that the most important words that come out of your mouth are the first words and the last words, right? First thing you say and the last thing you say. And those first remarks are especially important because they kind of set the tone and the direction of your communication. So usually you want it to be positive encouraging, right? Sometimes even humorous, get people laughing at the very beginning. But here in Ecclesiastes, it's like a smack right upside the head. And the author hits us right between the eyes with this opening uh, salvo that on the surface anyway, seems to be on the negative. In fact, the German scholar Gerhard von Rod went so far as to describe the author of Ecclesiastes as a bitter man suspended over the abyss of despair. He was reading it with the wrong lenses on, although I can see why he would say that, but I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, let me give you this morning, as we just kind of introduce our study, several reasons why we do well to read Ecclesiastes, why every believer needs to read it, every believer needs to understand it, every believer needs to know what the main point is, so that they can understand what the point of life is. First reason that we study Ecclesiastes is because it's honest about life. In fact, I think the book of Ecclesiastes, if I could just phrase it this way, is the most honest book in the Bible. And that's part of the reason why it's always been a really compelling part of the Scriptures for me, not because it's cynical and not because it's fatalistic, but because it's just so real. I mean, Ecclesiastes is the most real book in the Bible. Sometimes it's so real that the word we might use to describe it is raw. The novelist Herman Melville, if you've never heard of Melville, you surely have heard of Moby Dick. And he was a believer. And Herman Melville once called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. And that's what it is. It's just a bone honest book about life in the real world where the author pulls no punches and holds nothing back. And so we study Ecclesiastes because it's just honest about life in the real world. But also we study Ecclesiastes, secondly, because it addresses life's most difficult questions. Ecclesiastes is going to talk about many of those questions that so many of your lost friends and relatives often raise when they have objections to Christianity. It's going to deal with questions that many, if not most people, still ask very regularly and frequently today. What's the meaning of life? You ever ask yourself that question? You ever known anybody that's ever asked that question? What's all this about? What's life really for? What's the purpose? What's the meaning? Is there any hope? Or if things are so good, why do I feel so rotten? You ever felt that way in your life before? 
You ever known anybody that's ever felt that way? Or how about the question, does God really exist? Is there a God? Well, that's addressed in the book of Ecclesiastes. Or maybe the question, if God does exist, does God know my name? If he knows my name, does he really care about my life? If there is a God, does he have a personal plan for me and the direction of my life? Or how about this question? Why do bad things happen to to good people? Oh, yeah, you've had that question before, as has most of the world. You see, the author of this book explores all of those questions because they're the critical questions of life, challenging us at the deepest level. And the thing about Ecclesiastes, it will not allow for simplistic, childlike, Sunday school answers. I mean, these are deep questions that are addressed that demand thoughtful responses. So we study Ecclesiastes because it's a bone honest book about life in the real world that addresses life's most difficult questions. And then thirdly, we study the book because it helps us to understand the value of living for God rather than for ourselves. Or to couch it in terms of what Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians. I don't know if y'all spent any time in Galatians recently or not. But it explores the difference between walking by the Spirit and walking according to the flesh. Can I say it that way? You find that in an Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. There is a value of learning to live above the sun rather than spending all your time under the sun, which is where you'll get discouraged in life. Learning to live for God rather than for yourself. Now, you need to remember that behind the book of Ecclesiastes is this wise, experienced author And he has made it in life, man. He has attained everything. I mean, he wasn't an American, but he's lived the American dream times a hundred, right? And yet he was totally dissatisfied. He found that none of that stuff brought lasting satisfaction to his life, even though he had everything that the world would define and describe as success. It's no surprise to me, the best-selling Christian book in the United States of America. Well, first of all, it's the Bible. But you know what the number two best-selling book is? The Purpose Driven Life. 40 million copies sold in the United States of America back in 2002 uh, and beyond. There's no question why that's a hot seller because people don't know why they're here. They're trying to figure it all out. What is the purpose in life? And I'm telling you, we've got more information at our fingertips than any generation has had in history. You can Google anything, get an instant answer. It's part of the reason why nobody talks to one another at the dinner table anymore or at restaurants because everybody's got their phone out looking something up. I can't remember. Who was the last triple crown winner? Let me find out real quick. 15 seconds later, you've got, the la- you get them, you've got the answer, right? And so with all of this technology and all of our education, all of our sophistication, all of our training, you know what we're running low on? Wisdom. People got all kinds of knowledge. But I'm telling you, wisdom in this world is a rare jewel anymore. People don't have it. They're not living according to wisdom. And this is important. Because the Bible 
is not always going to address every single specific issue that causes you perplexity in life. And sometimes you have to ask yourself the question, not is this right or is it wrong, but is this wise or is this foolish? And that's where Ecclesiastes can be extremely helpful to your life because we're desperate for wisdom. We're desperate to understand who we are and why we're here. Carl Jung was a social psychologist several decades ago, and he said this, and this was a quote that captivated my attention. He said, about a third of my cases are suffering from no clinically definable neuroses, but from the senselessness and emptiness of their lives. Now, he made that statement decades ago. But I think that statement is more true today. I think if he were doing an evaluation, it wouldn't be a third of his cases. It would probably be two-thirds of his cases. And this is especially true among millennial generation, Generation X, Generation Z. That's behind, I know I lose count. It's like naming hurricanes. What are we going to do after Z? I don't know. It's these, these kids and young adults are the most anxious people in the history of the world, in my opinion. I mean, they're reading all this stuff about how things are going downhill and how they're not going to have as much money as mom and dad had. They're going to do worse. The job market is shrinking. Anxiety, anxiety. I was talking with a guy not long ago who managed a, uh, an outdoor shop, sports outdoor apparel, like hiking gear and things of that nature, populated in the employee ranks by mostly young adults. He said he can't keep them. He said he had one of his employees that worked there six or eight months, said, I've got to go to the restroom. He never saw the person again. He said that guy was just up and down all the time. He couldn't, have, he couldn't look people in the eye. I'm just saying, this is the kind of stuff that we've got going on in the world today. It's more true now than it was in Carl Jung's generation. And there's nothing really new about that. It was true in the days of the Old Testament as well. And it's the very thing that this author voices from the opening sentences of the book. See, one of the purposes of Ecclesiastes is to help us understand that the only way to find meaning and purpose in life is to place your hope and trust in a living God alone. If you don't have your eyes fixed on the Savior, you're going to live in despondency and despair, at least in disappointment most of the time. And that's part of the reason of the book, to get our eyes focused from under the sun to life above the sun, where there is a risen Savior who's reigning on his throne, whose name is Jesus Christ, who's not done with us yet, but who's coming again in power and glory. And that's the whole point. Lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. That's why Ecclesiastes is in the book. He makes the case that the world's path is a pathway to nowhere. It leads to disappointment, never fulfills anybody. And then he comes to the end of his argument all the way to chapter 12. And he summarizes everything that he's learned with this statement, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. This is the bottom line statement of Ecclesiastes. And here's what it says. This is the end of the matter. In other words, this is the conclusion 
This is, this is where I've come in all these 12 chapters of dialogue and discussion. This is the end of the matter. Here it is. Watch it. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. See what I'm talking about? This is the conclusion. So I want to give it to you up front because the conclusion is a very positive conclusion, one that's absolutely necessary for a life of hope and optimism in a world that can be and often is very discouraging. Now, I've been speaking a lot about the author, the author, the author, the author. Does this guy have a name? Who did write the book that's come to be known as Ecclesiastes? Well, he's never identified by name in the book, even though we've got a couple of hints along the way. He's referred to in verse 1 simply as the what? Did you notice it? The preacher, that's right. So you know it's got to be good, amen? The preacher, notoriously difficult to translate that. In fact, there may be some using English translations of the Bible, don't say the preacher. It may say the teacher, or it may say the seeker. The message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible, uses the word quester, which I'm not even sure is an English word person on a quest, you know. Preacher is probably the best translation. It's a word in Hebrew, uh, kohelet, which is probably a word you've never heard of before. But in the Greek New Testament, I can guarantee you, you know the Greek word that's translated for that word preacher. Anybody know what the Greek word that's translated preacher there is? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is not a Hebrew word. It's a Greek word. It comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Ecclesiastes, the preacher, Ecclesiastes. There's a Greek word in the New Testament from which we get our word church, ecclesia, the assembly of the people. So the word Ecclesiastes is directly related to the word ecclesia, church, assembly, gathering, And so the Ecclesiastes is the one who gathers together people for the purpose of teaching and instruction. So for our purposes today, we have a living, breathing Ecclesiastes in the room today. It would be me, but you can call me the Big E this morning. (laughs) I am the Ecclesiastes at Hillcrest. And so now you know exactly where the title of the book comes from. The title of the book is The Preacher. I could have said, open your Bible to The Preacher. And let's look at the first three verses today. Everybody with me so far? Say amen. All right. Now, who is that? We got his title, but who's the guy? Well, based on what comes next, we believe this preacher, this teacher, this one who seeks truth to impart truth is none other than Solomon. King of Israel, because he's identified here as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. I don't know about you, that pretty well narrows the field, right? Because Solomon was the only son of David who ruled after David over the United Kingdom of Israel. Solomon, by the time he writes this, is a senior adult. He had ruled over the United Kingdom of Israel following in the footsteps of King David Solomon had ruled for almost 40 years. He's likely the wealthiest man who'd reign. In fact, I think you can make a case Solomon is the wealthiest man that ever lived, taking the time value of money into account. Very wealthy man. 
his home, the palace that he built, was twice as large, at least twice as large as the temple of Solomon, the house of God that he built. His house was twice as big as the temple. And so this was a man who had made it. He says in verse 16 of chapter 1, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. So this is a man who had a lot of possessions, a man who had a lot of wisdom. In fact, we typically know Solomon as the wisest of all men, even though we can point to some very foolish choices that the man made with his life. But the point is that Solomon had seen much, he'd learned much, he had acquired much. I mean, 40 years on the rooftop of history. But he comes to the evening of his days and he's asking all of these deep questions, viewing life as kind of an anti-climax. He comes to the end of his life with more questions that he had answers. Have y'all ever felt that way before? I'm telling you, I've, I've been in the Bible all of my adult life and most of my entire life. And sometimes it seems to me that the more of the scriptures that I know, the more questions I have about life, the more ignorant sometimes I feel, the more shallow I feel sometimes. Solomon wrote three books contained in our Bibles. He wrote the Song of Solomon. In fact, some have said that he wrote a Song of Solomon uh, in the morning of his life. That's a book about sex, by the way. Amen. He wrote that early. And then he wrote Proverbs in the noontime of his life, a book to his boys to teach them how to make wise choices in a foolish and corrupt world. Then he comes to the end of his life, the evening of his days, and he writes Ecclesiastes in an effort to try to figure out what the point of all of life was. And nowhere is that more clear than in his opening statement, which is the most familiar statement in the whole book. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanity, repeats it for emphasis. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? That word vanity is maybe the key identifying word in all of Ecclesiastes. You know how many times that Solomon will use the word vanity in Ecclesiastes? 31 times. 31 times in 12 chapters. It's all over the book. And this is another Hebrew word that's kind of challenging to translate. It really refers to a breath or a, a vapor. Did y'all watch closely the bumper that we rolled, how smoky all that looked? Well, that's what the word vanity means. It, it refers to the idea of a vapor or smokiness. And the thing about smoke or that vapor it, this doesn't really apply in Florida because it doesn't happen often, but if you, you know, were raised where I did, a little bit further north in Middle Tennessee, on a cold winter's morning, you went out and you see your breath. How long does that last? Just milliseconds, right? And then it's gone, you don't see it again. Same is true with the smoke rising from a campfire. It's there for just a little bit. There's no trace really left behind of the smoke. And that's kind of what the word vanity refers to. It's a puff of smoke rising from a fire. It's there for a minute and gone the next. In fact, speaking of the message, which is the paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, he translates verse 2, smoke 
nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke, which is descriptive of life. It's fleeting. It's elusive. It's transitory. It disappears as suddenly as it comes, here today and gone tomorrow. And let me tell you, the older you get, the quicker life seems to go, doesn't it? You have kids and you have grandkids. And the thing about kids and grandkids is they put a face on the thing called time. I think life would move pretty slowly if you didn't have children. You know what I'm saying? But boy, when you have kids, you see them growing right before your eyes. You're sad about it. My grandson sat up by himself this week for the first time. And we didn't dance around the house. We all broke down in tears. No, lay back down. You are not permitted to rise. Because it's a reminder of time. Everybody in the room that has kids knows exactly what I'm talking about. Fleeting. Transitory. And then one day it's just kind of gone, right? This is what the Bible says in the New Testament, James 4 and verse 14. What is your life? Now, this is New Testament right here. What is your life? For you are a what? Say it out loud. A mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's what James has in mind, that vapor that comes out of your mouth on a cold Jerusalem winter's morn. And that's exactly what Solomon is saying here. You're born, you live, you die, you leave everything behind. People gather in your memory, and then they go to a meal and they eat fried chicken and potato salad. And then everybody looks at one another and says, hey, what are we doing tonight? It's truth. When the Monopoly game is over, all the pieces just go back in the box. And that's why this book begins the way it does. Vanity of vanity. The NIV says meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The first man to scale the heights of Mount Everest, nearly 29,000 feet above sea level, was Sir Edmund Hillary. And he was asked hundreds of times what that experience, being the first man to summit Everest, the highest point in the world, what did that feel like? And he always said, you know, in the instant of the moment, there was this rush of ecstasy, but it only lasted for a few seconds. And then as I looked around and saw the absence of life, it all appeared to me as nothing but desolation. There's a great book, if you've never read it, called Into Thin Air by a journalist named John Krakauer. You won't be able to put it down. He was a journalist that summited Mount Everest with a group, and they got caught into a storm. Man, you're talking about a compelling storyteller. And he pretty much said the same thing. He said he'd been fantasizing for months about what it was going to be like when he reached the very pinnacle of it all. And he said he was so exhausted by the time that he got there, he couldn't even summon the energy to even care. He said, I snapped four quick pictures, and then I turned around and started the march back down, anticlimactic. And see, that's the inevitable result. Here's the thing. Here's the perspective. That's the inevitable result if you put your hopes, your trust, your dreams in the things of this world and of this life alone. That's the inevitable conclusion. 
to life under the sun. In fact, let me give you a little heads up. We're going to be talking about that more, that concept of under the sun more next Sunday. But that phrase, under the sun, is repeated 28 times in 12 chapters. Under the sun, vanity under the sun, vanity under the sun, vanity under the sun, all over the book. And whenever Solomon uses that phrase, under the sun, he's talking about life in this present world, life this side of heaven. And I'm just telling you all this morning, y'all still with me, say amen. If you look at life, what's called myopically, in other words, one-dimensionally, if all your focus is horizontally in this life and in this world, when you only see life in the present dimension, it's almost impossible not to end up a cynic. Because for the secular person who looks at life strictly from the perspective under the sun, there is no gain. There's no meaning. It's like you're out walking on the beach. Some of y'all will be doing this evening. A sunset cruise out on the beach and you'll be walking up and down the shoreline. And as you walk, you'll be leaving footprints in the sand that won't be there longer than a minute or two. The waves will roll in, cover it up. And within a matter of moments, those footprints that you left will be gone. And if that's all there is to life, you're going to end up bearing a heavy load if all you look at is life under the sun. And so Solomon comes to this point in his life with all this money, all of these buildings, this great kingdom, the massive army, the greatest navy probably outside of the present day in the history of Israel, Solomon had it. He had everything, man. And his message is, you can have it all. But it'll all prove to be meaningless, a puff of smoke that doesn't last. It will never satisfy the deepest longing of your life. If you have everything under the sun and that's it, Solomon's conclusion is inevitable. If we could put it in the form of a mathematical formula, Solomon's equation would read like this, everything minus God equals what? Say it out loud nothing. Everything minus God equals nothing. That, brothers and sisters, is worth the price of admission today because that's the summary of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. And the only remedy, can I just put the whole biblical witness together and say it at the very beginning, the only remedy for that kind of discouragement and despair is the risen Jesus Christ. Jesus is our only hope. And it's like, like the law that we've just spent several weeks talking about. The law in Galatians, the law led to nothing for people but despair. The law can't lead to salvation. The law can't lead to a positive life. The law can't lead to a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. No, you need something else. What you need is grace. What you need is the cross. What you need is the gospel wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope for real life and for lasting purpose and meaning. What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? Solomon's answer to that question, zip, zilch, zero, nada. Nothing. And that's why to avoid the vanity of this life, you got to move from 
under the sun living to above the sun living. Or as the Bible says in Solomon's other book, Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Invest in things that have eternal value. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. Set your hearts on things above and not on the things of the world, but on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's the remedy right there. That's the remedy. But then a bit of practical wisdom as we conclude this morning. As you go along the way, living life under the sun, don't get sidetracked by the futility of it all. There are some people in the room who just need to learn how to have a good time. There are some people in the room who need to learn how to laugh, learn how to enjoy life, because God has given us all things for our enjoyment, the Bible says. So, Enjoy life. Love your husband. Love your spouse. Love your kids. Take that vacation. Get out on the floor with your grandkids. Roll around with them. Make a difference through your church. Be a blessing to people. But above all, enjoy life. And come to the realization that as you live for Jesus, sometimes... It's okay to eat dessert first and leave the calorie counting for another day. That's a good place to stop this morning. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Put your hands together and let's praise the Lord this morning. Amen.